please be advised that the following content may provoke distress as it discusses topics of sexual assault, suicide, and self-harm. So happy to be recording on this gorgeous fall day. It's sunshiny today uh, from the fourth floor of McEwen Hall in the beautiful Faith and Spirituality Center. Uh, we're here with Noor Fatma for Wisdom Wednesday. Uh, Noor is a dear friend of mine and a colleague and a fellow volunteer, and I'm so excited to have them here. Uh, Noor Fatma is a non-binary Muslim currently in their fourth year of global development studies at the University of Calgary. They are passionate about doing good every day and making change in small ways. Noor has volunteered with the Faith and Spirituality Center for the last three going on four years, and they are currently the co-op student for the 2021-2022 term. They're overly obsessed with anime and bubble tea, and the worst wisdom they've ever been given is you'll grow out of it. Welcome, Noor. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, for our listeners at home, the way that this podcast, uh, we're learning kind of on the job, but the the pattern that we've fallen into is that we have a little uh, unrecorded, off the record, I just get to hang out with these cool people <laughs> and hear about what they want to talk about. Uh, and then we you know, grab our tea, we get settled, and we turn on the microphones and we just have a casual conversation about faith journeys and wisdom and more when we were having that uh, lovely pre-recording conversation, you mentioned uh, that the thing you really wanted to talk about today was the intersection between your queerness and your faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely where I sort of want to go with today's conversation. Yeah, so where did that, maybe the best way to start that is like when did that collision first happen for you either like when did you realize you were queer or when did your queerness start to uh turn into this kind of wrestling with your faith that you described going through yeah i think i always sort of knew i was queer um growing up i always like you know when you have your like little childhood crushes and whatnot um i was very like open I always had crushes on sort of anybody um and you know anytime I did like anyone it was never bashed down or shut down by my parents which is something I appreciated um which is why I don't think I really struggled with the idea of faith and queerness being something separate necessarily until I was I believe in middle school um and that's when sort of these ideas of you know, you can't be queer and you can't be Muslim sort of came up. Um, I went to a, I went to an ESL school growing up um, until grade nine, and the majority of the population that attended that school, they were Muslim. Um, Muslim kids from immigrant families, very similar to me. And so there was a lot of internalized homophobia and very external homophobia as well. Um, 
lots of jokes about trans folks and you know it wasn't a very good environment in terms of that and I think that's when I sort of began to realize that maybe being queer wasn't wasn't a good option in a way not to say let me backtrack (laughs) not to say being queer is a bad option but in my head at that time I began to associate queerness with something not okay was there like a particular moment where that shift happened or was it more of like all of a sudden you were in the middle of it there's definitely one moment I can recall um it was when I was in grade six and you know in a classroom and one of the one of my classmates he was teasing me and he was just like yeah one word you're like a homo and I remember being very upset by that, and I wasn't even sure why, because in, I don't even think, like, I consciously knew. Like, no one ever consciously said to me, homo means, like, gay or queer. Um, but I knew that. Like, somehow I knew, like, that's what he was trying to say. And I went, I remember going to my teacher, and I was like, he called me a homo. And my teacher, instead of being like, maybe we shouldn't use this term that's not appropriate to refer to people of the queer community, my teacher was just like, oh, we shouldn't, like, you know, you know, don't call people that. It's not a good thing to call people because, you know, none of us are that. So the take was a little different. And I think that's when that shift sort of happened when I was like, oh, I did have like going back to, again, like the whole thing, like having crushes and stuff um, on girls and guys and everyone in between, <laughs> you know, um, I think I became more cognizant of that and began to be like, oh, so I'm not really accepted um, by my peers and clearly the larger community. And so I began to reject faith altogether, honestly. Right. So you, first of all, like what a remarkably difficult place to be put in where it's not a defense of, hey, we shouldn't use homo as this derogatory term because it's disrespectful both to the person you're calling that and to the person or to the people who um, are homosexual. It's more of a, oh, well, being homo is bad and no one here is that. And it's, and it's that articulation and framing. And I feel like we're in a very similar age demographic mm-hmm. and we kind of grew up uh, and went through school during this major shift that mm-hmm. happened where now I think uh, like if I have my little cousin or something is in school and that type of language would be thrown around, the conversation would be very different. Mm-hmm. But it certainly wasn't like we were kind of just on the cusp of that understanding mm-hmm. yeah. when you and I would have been in grade school. And I guess the the next direction or or question that I have that comes out of that is because you said that you started wrestling and rejecting your faith and not Mm -hmm. yourself which I think is so there's something there that's quite and and fascinating sounds very that's not quite the word I'm (laughs) wanting to use because you're not an animal (laughs) in a zoo or anything like that but there's something that's really striking about that Mm -hmm. to me because so often the narrative we hear is that like pray the gay away that Mm -hmm. hey like I my faith is so central to both who I am but also to my community and my Mm -hmm. family and it's all of my support network is through my faith Uh, And so the response is to reject your queerness. And Mm -hmm. so it's really interesting to me that you say that you began rejecting your faith. So what was that like, that decision in your mind? 
I think like there's definitely a period of time where I rejected my queerness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually feel like that came after I rejected my faith, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. Um, and I think the main reason I first uh, rejected my faith was because I was already having some troubles with it. Um, mainly because I guess um, typically, and this is obviously not true at all, but typically what you're taught in a lot of more conservative schools is that things like, for example, sexual abuse and sexual assault are your fault. And those are mm-hmm. things I had experienced. And so for me, there's already that sort of disconnect and um that sort of just was like this added layer was just like oh well clearly i'm just going to go to hell right <laughs> and so you know it was in, just kind in of like, for a penny in for a pound exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah and so i was like if that's gonna happen screw it type of thing and i remember yeah in grade seven that's when i kind of told my sister i was like yeah i'm like i don't believe in like islam anymore i'm agnostic and i remember um going through a time in my life where I was definitely looking into other religions, uh, other practices, trying to see how they fit for me. Um, But I never really got that same sense of, I think, peace, Hmm. which was, I think, something that was lacking. And that's when I think I shifted back and I was like, okay, maybe I'll be Muslim, but I don't have to be queer. I don't have to be gay. Right, right. (laughs) I don't have to be who I am, I guess. Hmm. So what was the, we're going to get to that moment in a second here, but I'm wondering what that kind of exploration of other faiths and that searching was like for you. Like, how did, how did you feel during those years? Yeah, I think um, it was definitely a little difficult just, again, because the school I went to was majority Muslim. Um, so there weren't a lot of other kids from different faith backgrounds. Um, we did have the odd Christian kid <laughs> just kind of thrown in there. Um, but yeah, majority Muslim. So a lot of like my research essentially was, you know, looking at like those encyclopedias and reading up like, what does this faith believe? And then switching more to an online sort of section. Um, and, you know, searching online, like what's Buddhism? What's Christianity? What's mm-hmm. um, Zoroastrianism? Um, lots of different faiths and just like reading up on them. and. It's actually interesting because that was one of the things that drew me closer back to Islam, actually, um, because I was noticing all these very commonalities and I was like, oh, this is also present in Islam. Like, this is also what I was taught. Mm-hmm. And oh, like, this is also very much there. It's a very much a idea that is present. And so this idea of almost this interconnectedness between other faiths um, sort of began to form in my mind as well. And I was like, right. interesting. What an incredible seed to be planting for you to then end up at the Faith and Spirituality <laughs> Center, where that's that's part of the the mission of pluralism or the teachings mm-hmm. of pluralism, right? Is that yeah. there are all of these resonances between mm-hmm. the faiths. So, okay, so you go through this period of um, seeking out other faiths, searching for another religion, and none of them click. You said none of them kind of bring you that peace. Mm-hmm. So then you return to uh, Islam. Mm-hmm. What is that turning back like? Like, was there a reconciliation period with your, like, did your family know that you were going through this kind of agnostic period? Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that? What was that return like for you? So in terms of my family knowing, only my sister really knew. <laughs> um, I definitely wasn't comfortable, you know, discussing this with like my parents and stuff. And, you know, I think it would definitely would have been a difficult conversation to have. So she was the only one really who knew what was sort of happening. Right. Um, in terms of going back, though, I think it was a really interesting 
sort of period because I definitely uh, became more spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I really like leaned into more of the spiritual practices and I wanted to like know more about, I guess, like things about how you should act, um, more things like that, um, rather than, I guess, like the more outwards acts of worship and whatnot. Um, for example, I didn't really pray. Um, in terms of fasting, I wasn't really fasting. Um, I didn't really do those things. Um, but I was more like, I guess, looking at my connection with God, with Allah, and, you know, thinking about, like, how that's, like, sort of manifesting in my life in a way. Mm-hmm. And and then I think after that, that whole piece of, like, doing, like, the obligatory deeds, like, you know, praying, fasting, you know, giving charity and whatnot, those, I think, became more of my focus point, I think, later on when, when I was in high school. Yeah, that's... What an incredible shift to go through where you return to your faith and all of a sudden there's this new depth and layer. Uh, And the other component of that return that you kind of mentioned was this rejection of yourself. Um, So what was what was that like to both have that uh, those kind of new discoveries of, oh, these are these aspects of my faith that you've both probably matured into a little bit because you're older but also maybe discovered through this period of, of research and doubt uh, that you went through. Uh, so what was what was that part of it like, to feel like you have to put this component of your identity into a box uh, to be able to participate in your faith? I mean, honestly, it was very disheartening, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, because like it just felt like everywhere around me um this was sort of also that period where i think acceptance of you know people who weren't like heterosexual was becoming a little more you know common um you know when a lot of those youtubers were making their coming out videos sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know it was becoming more talked about you know within sort of our school communities and just in our community like youth communities in general and people were like oh like this is like a thing and what i noticed was that like Um, My friend group in junior high, um, they were very, I think, open about this stuff. Um, A lot of them, you know, were, like, experimenting as well in terms of, like, labels and, like, were they, like, pansexual? Were they bisexual? Were they, like, asexual? (laughs) Were they just straight? And so um, going through that um, with them was also really helpful. Um, But then at the same time, there was, again, that aspect of, I think, internalized homophobia definitely present and internalized transphobia definitely present there as well um in the sense that it felt like it was okay for everyone else to be doing this to be expressing themselves and to be able to be loving someone of the same sex essentially but it was wrong for me right like it was okay for them Mm -hmm. but it wasn't okay for you yeah and what was the what was the internal logic there like what was the if you if you were following through if someone was like well that doesn't make sense um, what was the kind of defense that your brain or your heart had I guess it was always like well it's okay because they're them and it's different for them like I don't think I really had any logic at that Mm. point I don't think I think in my head it was just like you know these people it's okay for them to you know be like this because you know they can be like this and I feel like there was also a lot of like you know past repression and guilt Um, you know in the sense that like I have all this guilt um for example again like going back like relating to like the sexual assault and abuse Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of guilt from that um and you know like 
being like, well, I'm already like not a good person. So there's sure. still that yeah. aspect of, I think, thinking that being queer equates to not being good yeah, at that point that in time. Yeah, that layering of, of trauma almost mm-hmm. of not having uh, a safe space necessarily within your community where you can be... Or, or even if that space existed and you're not sure that it mm-hmm. exists and it feels so frightening, at least this is, and this is maybe me projecting, but yeah. like I wasn't sure what the reaction would be mm-hmm. when I came out. Yeah. And because of that, there's a lot of fear and maybe that safe space has existed the whole time. Yeah. But unless you know that it's there, you're taking a huge risk. So yeah. There's both that layer of rejection and then also this layer of trauma that comes from an experience of uh, sexual assault and mm-hmm. sexual abuse. Yeah. And uh, it it makes perfect sense that, <laughs> um, that it would be difficult to extend the same compassion to yourself that you yeah. would to your friends. Yeah. Um, but obviously, the nor that I know <laughs> is, you know, very public about their sexuality, very <laughs> proud about their their queerness and their gender identity and their faith and the way that all of that intersect, mm-hmm. intersects together. So there was this period of rejection of self. How, how long would you say that that lasted? And then what changed? What was the shift? I think there was definitely like... Because in grade 11 is sort of when I officially came out as, like, non-binary and, like, mm-hmm. I started telling people, more people, that I was bi and whatnot um, within, like, my friend circle and whatnot. And so that's when I guess I was, like, out. But even at that point, there was still, like, a lot of um, internalized homophobia. Like, for example, if I ever did, like, have a crush on a girl, I'd always be like, oh, no, it's not okay. Or what if someone finds out, even though, like, right. no one would, obviously. And, you know, um, I was very grateful to, you know, have, like, a... Like, my privacy was very protected at home. You know, no one, like, there was no aspect of, like, show me your stuff type of thing. It was very, like, that's your stuff, you do it type of thing. So there's, like, obviously no risk of me being found out, essentially. But there's that fear almost there. And it's interesting because I think the day the shift happened was, um, so in grade 11 as well, I, you know, I overdosed. What am I saying? I know. Or you know. (laughs) But I I overdosed and I ended up uh, in a hospital um, in a mental health ward for a little while. And over there, I think, like, that experience, well, it was definitely not a good one. Right. Um, I think it did bring some clarity in some ways. um, And it really made me just sort of think about how, I think, how short life is. (laughs) And how it was, in a way, just silly for me to just be so caught up in this and just to really sit down and think, like, what does God really want from me? Mm-hmm. And to just sort of have that conversation with myself and to understand that, like, for me anyways, what Les Panadana wants is, you know, you to live, like, a good life, to live a life where you're not harming yourself or others mm-hmm. and a life where, you know, when you leave your legacy, things you've done, they will continue to do good for other people, you know? Right. And is that, uh, for our listeners at home, is that an Islamic tenant of doing no harm to yourself and yes. others? Yeah. Um, in Islam, it's like, you know, if you save one life, it's as if you've saved all of humanity. And mm-hmm. if you've hurt, killed one life, it's like you've killed all of humanity. So it's like, a, even if you're helping just one single person, the impact of that is very great. Right. And so, you know, taking those principles, I think of doing no harm, 
to yourself and to others um, was something very was a shift for me as well. Mm. Yeah, kind of that that space when you're in um, in this uh, supportive, reflective mm-hmm. space, like. Thank God we have mental health <laughs> wards. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where, where uh, someone who uh, is is struggling and is suicidal mm-hmm. um, to the point that they might overdose can can have an opportunity with uh, supportive people around. Mm-hmm. And we could do a whole other podcast about <laughs> the ways that those supports are uh, sometimes imperfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's something. I think really the theme of this podcast is wisdom, but there's some wisdom to be offered there in that Mm -hmm. period of reflection and in the acknowledgement that in, you know, denying part of this self, you were doing harm to yourself and doing harm in a really deeply traumatic way. Um, So how I, for one, am extremely grateful that you received (laughs) that opportunity to kind of recollect and change. So you have um, this huge turning point uh, that you can mark. What happens next? Like, do things begin to change slowly? Do you come back and make a lot of big changes? I know you mentioned coming out to your friend group, which must have felt pretty huge. Yeah. Um, I think at that point, um, there's definitely a big victories and then smaller mm-hmm. ones. Mm-hmm. Um, after, you know, the hospital and whatnot, um, my parents, they wanted me to take some time off of school just to focus on my mental health. And so I actually did drop out for a while. Right. Um, just because, you know, take some time for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I ended up going to Pakistan. And it was interesting over there um, because in, I had this newfound confidence after coming out to my friends. And, you know, and I knew that it would be a good reaction because they were all very, you know, kind and open. Mm-hmm. And so, you know having that sort of confidence that I had a group to back me up almost. Um, over there, I wasn't, I never really shied away from maybe talking about these things to my relatives. Right. And if any of my relatives did ask, like, you know, are you like queer or something? I would be very open and be like, yeah. Um, I wouldn't obviously out myself to certain people that sure. I was like, this might be not the best <laughs> decision. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but overall, like everyone was like, oh, okay. And, um, because of that, I also had some very interesting conversations. I think in my head, I had a very Western idea that like, oh, if I go to Pakistan, like everyone there is going to be like homophobic and transphobic mm-hmm. and it's just the worst. Uh, but when I went there, that, was, that wasn't the reality. And I think that was also, you know, part of me <laughs> dismantling, you know, these inner like, I guess, ideas of yeah. what the East is in a way. And so... Are there, are there any of those conversations that stand out in your mind as really pivotal or maybe they just stick with you? Yeah, one of the conversations I was having was with my cousin and we were just kind of talking about trans folks and she was just like, yeah, I don't really get like, what's the big deal about it? And I was like, what do you mean? What's the, like, let's expand on that. And she's just like, yeah, like, you know, like, I don't understand because, you know, these people, God just made them that way. And, like, you know, we just got to respect everything. So, like, why is this such a big deal? They can just, like, live however they want. And, you know, they're still, at the end of the day, they're still human and they're still Muslim. And, you know, we have to respect everyone. And it was a very interesting conversation because um, I didn't expect that at all from her. Right. Um, She was a very, I guess, like, straight-laced type of girl. Um, She's very, you know, I want to say... I don't want to say typical but like she was very just uh just a regular old person and you know 
I think in my head I just had this assumption that like because she is very much just a regular old person in Pakistan she's gonna have these views and no and she started talking about how all her friends thought the same way how they're just like it's so dumb and I think that was a very interesting thing and I think that really forced me to like let go of all these assumptions I had mm. and sort of move past that and then I think that also gave me another like layer of confidence to be like okay well there is acceptance and it's interesting to see that there was more acceptance over there than there was here right yeah, <laughs> yeah. well and I imagine that that must have felt quite healing on its own to mm-hmm. like have these spaces that were Muslim um, but that also were accepting and even celebrating of mm-hmm. uh, queer people and trans people yeah I think it was I think it was really an interesting shift mm-hmm. and I think that also sort of really helped me understand like the like how colonized my mind was right, in a way course. as well and it was of like course. wow yeah and do you think that that understanding then uh turned you towards because you're in global development studies mm-hmm. like i imagine that that experience has almost shaped the trajectory that you're taking with your degree and with your life yeah i think just sort of yeah hearing that and then just all the other experiences over there really just made me like honestly stop and be like yeah like I have these like very unhealthy beliefs held about like people from Pakistan, from the Middle East, from everywhere that have just been ingrained in me and you know, that's not healthy. Right. Um, And then coming back and doing a degree in global development studies and the global development studies is all about like decolonize your mind, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everything you know completely false, you know, you can only learn from the people around you and it's a very, I think, bottom-up approach and you know, having that as my degree and having those experiences, I am like, I feel like I'm I'm able to approach situations now without sort of, I like to think that bias. Right. As much, we all have a bias, let's be yeah. real. And do you think that uh, that decolonizing process has brought you closer to, to your own faith or your own identity? Yeah, because it was actually through that process of, I think, decolonizing that I also began to look into like, how we're like, queer folks treated in like pre-colonial Islam mm-hmm. um, and it really showed me that like these people they were in society they were you know members of society and you know they were there they existed they lived and everything was pretty normal and you know there were um, you know a lot of people had partners and stuff and so it's really interesting that this was like a thing uh, sort of like just a normal thing like no one really talked too much about it um, and then colonialism happened and all of a sudden all these practices were banned and whatnot and it is really interesting to see that and how I think how much colonialism has impacted I think current like Muslim societies and how they still have these like I think lingering um I don't know what, I would, what term I would use I don't know what I would use either I guess impacts yes yeah, yeah. impact is a good word for impacts that. yeah because they still have like all these like laws in place and it's it's almost, it's just funny because it's like, this wasn't the case before, but now it's like, it is. So I think that process also really helped me come to terms with that. Like, this isn't like a Muslim thing. It's a imperialistic thing. It's a colonial thing. Yeah. Yeah. What a, like, earth-shattering discovery to yeah. make. Uh, so if you, because I imagine 
that right now, uh, and I'm going to call you out, if, <laughs> not you specifically, but, um, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, maybe I should decolonize my mind because that sounds awesome. Uh, what advice would you give to that person? Like, what would be step number one that they could take? Honestly, talking to someone who is from the place, from some, from not from Canada, that is the first mm-hmm. thing because... I think one of the biggest things was that, like, I had a very diverse friend group. Um, you know, all my friends were from, like, or, you know, Pakistani. They were Arabi. You know, they were, like, very different. Like, they were black. You know, they were all from these different, like, diverse walks of life. But they were Canadian. And that right. was the biggest thing. I only interacted with Canadians, um, you know? And so because of that, you do have a similar mindset. Obviously not the same, but there are some things that you will just think similarly on and that's just because of the way I guess society and cultures are Mm -hmm. and so the first and most important step I would say is don't talk to someone who's Canadian (laughs) (laughs) find find anyone else yeah like on campus you know like there's the international students services right they're a great place to start um I really enjoyed I I did last year like the you speak program which is like this program where you get partnered up with another student and Mm -hmm. you teach them a language and they teach you a language and my partner student was someone from Ukraine. Oh, incredible. And it was so interesting because she had such amazing wisdom and she was just, it was just so interesting to hear her perspective and her, and just her thoughts about anything, honestly, you know, and I think that's where you start to see that we truly are more similar than we are different. Right, yeah. And, you know, the misconceptions you might hold probably aren't true yeah well and i would say um if if you're like scrambling obviously uh for university students that's a great opportunity um the english major in me is also (laughs) going to give the advice of like read works in translation Mm -hmm. read works by people from different countries Mm -hmm. and who have written in different languages and go and see plays or read plays. Mm-hmm. I'm also a theater major. Um, <laughs> so, so like that's where my mind goes. Yeah. And obviously the best and, and most fruitful is when you can have a dialogue yeah. back and forth with, with someone. But also if you're sitting there, I think, panicking of people like, I only know Canadians, um, then uh, there are steps that you can do as well, while you're waiting to get registered in that brilliant You Speak program at UC <laughs> or whatever else, that there, uh, we live in this wealth of um, kind of access mm-hmm. to other cultures yeah. uh, because of globalization. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, we could have a whole podcast <laughs> talking about the, uh, the the traumas and dangers and whatever else of globalization. Um, but there's also this incredible opportunity. Mm-hmm to um to decolonize your mind yeah uh yeah so we're kind of reaching the end of our podcast uh and i want to first of all like thank you really deeply for um showing up as your most vulnerable authentic self and sharing your story and i think that there's a lot of um both wisdom to be learned and also like myself as a person sitting here with you felt very seen um, in the way that you told your story and so I'm very grateful for that and I'm will will almost guarantee that there are listeners who are also feeling very seen right now uh, which matters and so I want to kind of give you an opportunity before we close 
to offer uh, wisdom to, you know, maybe someone who is at a place in their journey where they haven't reached that uh, kind of peace and balance that you have now, where maybe they're still closeted or they're really struggling with their faith or they're feeling alienated. Like what, what, advice or wisdom would you offer to not necessarily a young nor that's that's an awkward question um but to someone who might be in a similar place Mm -hmm. that you used to be i think the best advice i could offer is to within the means you have available is to honestly go and see the world Mm -hmm. um and that can be as small as maybe talking to someone you've never talked to or you know taking riding to the next train station, you know, it doesn't have to be anything big, but expand your world just a little, you know. um, One thing I would do a lot is I would randomly hop on the train, the C train, and go to a random church, um, because there's lots of those around in Calgary. (laughs) Um, But yeah, just like go to random places and, you know, places that are just places you would never think about going Mm -hmm. to, because that in and of itself, that's an act of courage. It's very difficult to do that. And that broadens your horizons and I think when you broaden your horizons your inner world inside of you it becomes a little more clearer because you're able to see the world in a different way yeah uh so we're 100% gonna run over time because I've realized that I have another question (laughs) that was when we were having this uh our kind of Mm -hmm. pre-conversation before we turn the mics on you said something that like hit me in the heart which was you had a realization that like god has a place for you Mm -hmm. um and i just i wanted to both uh put that phrase onto uh this recording (laughs) um, because i think it's an incredibly like for people of faith that Mm -hmm. recognition um that god has a place for you is monumental Mm -hmm. uh and i wondered if if maybe that's kind of our closing thought or image and if you had anything that you wanted to like like what was that discovery like or or what does that mean to you when you say that I think the biggest thing it means to me is that there's a verse in the Quran and I'm going to not completely quote it because I can't remember words from at the top of my head but it's basically that God does not give you a burden more than you can handle Mm. and you know God has in Islam, you know, we have this belief of risk, and risk is basically a belief that everything in your life that comes to you has been written for you. And so God has taken the time to do that for you, you know? Like, everything for you is already written. It's already predestined. You know, all you have to do is go out and get it mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. best way you can, you know, in a way that's not harming others. And so why would God do that if God never had a place for you, and if God didn't love you, right. and if God didn't want you to love others and to do good, you know? Wow. That's just the way I see it. Yeah, what a phenomenal insight <laughs> into your faith. Yeah. Um, so thank you for both the gift that was the last uh, 45 seconds of you talking <laughs> that, and also for the gift of your story and your wisdom. Uh, I feel like myself as a, a listener and a witness to this, I feel very moved by your call to courage and uh, for the authenticity and the vulnerability that you've shown up with today. And I'm really grateful for it. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me and thank you for listening.